Dave Kiefer wrote the, some of the lyrics to this song in 2020, and then Austin Hayes filled it in and put music to it, and then local musicians sang it, so you gotta listen to it. It's not the same here on Staten, the South End is dead, and there ain't no food there. Don't want to go north, where is the Sally Bear? Sick of the rain and I miss tattooers. Sick of the rain and I miss tattooers. Sick of the rain and I don't know where the sun is. I'm sick of the rain and I miss tattooers. And that was a very local, very beautifully written song, uh, performed, written by all Ketchikan folks. I was planning on playing that later in the show, but I was having some technical difficulties. So there you have it. That is the Tatsuta song written by Dave Kiefer. It was produced by Tracy Brown. Austin Hayes added music to it, and it was sung by Joe Williams. And uh, the musicians are all other incredible local artists. So thankful for that. Welcome to First City Forum. I... I know there was a few, a couple, a few seconds of dead air there while I was talking to all of you and welcoming you to Monday and to the show. And uh, anyways, apparently my microphone wasn't working right and I didn't know what to do. So we got that fixed and we're ready to go. Happy Monday to all of you out there. It is a gorgeous day in Ketchikan. The sun is shining. I'm hopeful for spring. It's possible this is like a tease of spring, uh, but we shall see. We shall see what happens. 
happens. I have a very special guest with me in the studio today, my uh, former high school history teacher and our now district representative, Dan Ortez, is here in the studio. Hello there, sir. How are you? Hello, Catherine. It is indeed a pleasure to be here this morning. You know, I think uh, Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz always had it right. There's no place like home, and I'm just happy to be here in Ketchikan today on this beautiful day and happy to have the opportunity to uh, to update folks on what's going on in the legislature. So let's get after it. Let it let's do it. So what is going on up there? What's happening? Well, Catherine, um, in some ways, um, it's it's business as usual in terms of that being our primary job when we're in the legislature during our, our opportunity during our session is to is to adopt uh, an operating budget for the coming year or for the coming fiscal year as we refer to it which begins on July 1st 2022 and ends on June 30th 2023 and so you know you can talk about private legislation or special legislation you can talk about other issues that are affecting the state um, in different ways but in the end whether you know when it's all said and done the one primary job we have to do as legislators is to pass a budget and um that's not always easy um and it is the thing that takes most of our time while we're up there um but it's worthy work and it's work that uh, merits uh careful consideration um and lots of different issues go into into the process but uh right now yeah that's what we're 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 in the heart of we're we're in the heart of putting together our operating budget. When I say our, I'm speaking about the legislature as a whole, which our primary function as legislators is to be the appropriators of uh, the state's resources to go to either different agencies that are involved in state operations and the way that they serve the state and or our capital budget and appropriating for capital expenditures so that we can try and keep up with um, deferred maintenance issues and and, uh, hopefully look for opportunities to develop projects that will help um, expand our state's economy. Um, And and, and so, yeah, that's what we do. We we appropriate resources, um, hopefully to the best interests of the state overall and to the betterment of the state residents overall. Um, And, of course, taking into account what resources we have available to us or what revenue we have available to us in order to appropriate those resources. And, you know, as you might guess, with 60 different people, uh, there being 20 in the Senate and 40 in the House, all having, you know, different viewpoints as to how to, quote, best appropriate those resources, um, it's not an easy job, but it's a very, very worthwhile endeavor, and it's an endeavor that always brings interest um, um, and brings, um, you know, heartfelt consideration on the part of most of the legislators that I know, and certainly on my part. I try to do the best I can at representing my district's best interests in relationship to that job of putting forward our state's resources. Um, but I also always remember that I'm a, a legislator that not only represents uh, District 36, but I also am honor bound to represent the best interests of the state overall. So 
Uh, not easy, but very worthwhile. And we can get into some specifics um, if you want to go from there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I also want to say that the phone lines are open. Uh, Dan said that he's happy to talk to anybody who wants to call in. Absolutely. And so if you want to call in and chat with Dan Ortez, the call-in number is 907-247-2000. We will have the phone lines open all show. And uh, so, yeah. So let's dive into some specifics. Just, uh, you know, based upon that general overview, I can't even imagine how challenging that is it is it, it really is and you know it's been um particularly challenging in the last eight years since basically i've been in the legislature <laughs> right. um it's been particularly challenging because we've we've been um dealing with declining revenue particularly from oil resources which was our primary um and almost nearly our only source of uh revenue uh, for many, many years was uh, revenue that we got from uh, from selling our state's uh, valuable res- resource of oil. And, uh, of course, when oil production started to fall off about 10 to 12 years ago, that's when things really began to be more problematic. Prior to that, we had years, Catherine, where we took our oil revenue, which in some years amounted to as much as over $9 billion, and we were able to fund our budget, able to pay out a, uh, a statutory PFD, and able to put money into savings as well, all of those things. Um, and, you know, it was, while they still fought back then, it was my understanding they still fought over uh, where those resources went, they had adequate resources, right. um, and they were able to, um, you know, argue over things like big capital budgets and where particular projects would go. Since I've been in office, uh, it's been not that way at all. Uh, you know, we went from a state that was producing two million barrels of oil a day and getting a certain amount of money off of each barrel of oil that we were selling um, to producing only 500,000 barrels of oil a day. Uh, so more than a three-fourths reduction in production. And at the same time, we went through some periods there where oil prices per barrel prices dropped off significantly as well. And so it's just been a, a, a more problematic exercise in putting together a budget based on declining revenue. However, mm-hmm. on the positive side, on the positive side, I can report that revenue for the state is certainly up um, this year, and it's not just from oil revenue, uh, but also it's due to the uh, performance of the stock market in relationship to our permanent fund itself. And, uh, you know, our permanent fund had record earnings last year. Um, and what that does then is it allows the state, which right now operates under what's called the POMV law, percentage of market value law, it allows the state to withdraw no more than 5% of the total value of the permanent fund itself uh, to help pay out the permanent fund dividend, but also to help significantly help run state operations. We adopted that law back in 2018, I believe. And so when the stock market does really, really well, um, you know, that leaves more money um, in the end um, to to withdraw from the government because you're still, I mean, withdraw from the permanent fund because you're still only drawing 5%, but if that value of the fund is higher and higher, then that 5% equates to a higher uh, monetary value. And then that coupled with oil prices um, seeing a rebound over the last couple of years, uh, particularly in the last six months, uh, yeah, revenue is up for the state 
for both of those reasons. And so, uh, you know, that in some ways makes this year's uh, budget process easier. Um, but we're still, you know, there's still quite a bit of debate as to um, where those resources should go. And, and I guess primarily the debate is uh, between a slight majority in the Senate and a slight majority in the House, of which I'm a member of that majority, um, they're focused in on making sure that not only do we have taking advantage of the revenue that we have right now, not only that it be there for this year's appropriation budget, but that we can put forward a sustainable budget that could move forward into the future where we can continue to produce uh, enough revenue so that we can continue to hand out uh, dividends and we can continue to uh, adequately fund state operations and hopefully without having to add any significant new taxes. Um, and that's kind of been, been kind of our goal. And when I say our, I'm talking about a current slight majority in the Senate and a slight majority in the House. But and then the governor, he has a different, little different perspective. He would like us to uh, to hand out, not hand out. He would like us to distribute um, what's called the statutory PMV. P, uh, I'm sorry, the statutory permanent fund dividend, which goes back to a statute that was passed way back when they established the first dividends. Um, and uh, when they passed that statute, they had a formula that said, okay, you will distribute the dividend in this particular manner. Um, and at that time, because we had lots and lots of oil revenue, we could pretty much take a draw from the permanent fund itself and simply distribute the dividend. And then whatever we didn't use for the dividend, we could put back into the fund because we had all this other revenue coming in from oil taxes that was funding everything else. Now, because we're past that time uh, period, um, the statutory, it's our perspective that the original statute that was passed in order to distribute dividends is no longer really, you can't do that into perpetuity, into the future, well, without drastically harming the overall value of the fund itself. And so we're just in a little different ballgame from our perspective. And so uh, while we all enjoy uh, receiving, uh, me, Dan Ortez, he enjoys receiving large PFDs. That's really a good thing for him personally. Um, I recognize that um, while I might benefit personally from that, I can see a real risk in following that uh, perspective or following that original statute to its into the future when we're in a much different situation now uh, in terms of revenue than we were back when that original statute was passed. So anyway, that's a little bit complicated, but <laughs> I'll, I'll be glad to, uh, to answer any questions in relationship to the original statute and in, in, in relationship to the now what we call the POMV law, which dictates how we treat permanent fund revenue now. Um, and yes, those two statutes are conflicting with each other. You can't follow them both at the same time and not violate one or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's really where the, the rub is. Um, but still, um, you know, Catherine, I would, I would have to say the atmosphere up at the Capitol right now is positive. Uh, I think all the groups are, are working pretty well together. And um, there's this um, understanding that while we may disagree uh, on that issue of the PFD, um, ultimately, we recognize that it's our jobs as legislators to work more cooperatively than we have in recent years and to try to uh, finish our work on time and to try to uh, arrive at a consensus uh, a consensus decision as to how at least we're going to move forward in this next fiscal year. And hopefully we can even move towards some steps that would provide a more 
lasting, sustainable plan, if you will, fiscal plan that would allow us to move forward without such uncertainty. And some, you know, I think if we could come up with a sustainable fiscal plan that everybody would agree to, that would eliminate a lot of the anchor and the uh, ongoing discussion in relationship to the PFD and in relationship to how else to use our resources that we have. You know, the whole question about new taxes. Um, some people believe that, um, you know, we need new taxes. Uh, other people um, think that, well, if we use our resources ju more judiciously, we might not even need new taxes in the future. Um, and so, you know, those kinds of things, you know, anytime you talk about taxes on people, those are contentious issues for sure, understandably so. I know if somebody wants to tax me, uh, they have to explain why. Um, what, what's your right, reason? Right, <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> so, yes. so in any case, um, you know, those are the things that have in some ways been ongoing discussions, but I, w I would happily report, I do happily report that uh, things right now in the legislature are overall pretty positive, and uh, it seems like uh, the four different caucuses, the minority in the Senate and the majority in the Senate and then the minority in the House and the majority in the House, uh, while we're not getting along uh, exceedingly well, <laughs> we are cooperating a lot more than in years past. That's phenomenal. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a lot of, that's progress right yeah. there. there. Yeah. You there you so go. you've been uh, representing us for eight years? This will be my end of my eighth year here okay. after, after this particular year. That's uh, it'll be a, the end of my eighth year. Yeah. And uh, it's been an honor and a privilege for me to do that. I have filed for re-election. Um, and then for this, which, which if I was, would... If I were to be successful, uh, that would put me at 10 years of service. And I just would say that um, some heavy consideration would have to go uh, past anything further than that. Absolutely. So, yes. Yeah. So I have several I have several questions. When is the budget due, number one? Okay. That's a very good question. We, before we can adjourn um, our sessions, or I should say session, and the years past, it's been in the last couple of years, it's been sessions, plural. Uh, we have to pass an operating budget along to the governor. Um, and so the goal is to get that done um, ideally within 90 days and most realistically 120 days. Um, so let's just say by the middle of April uh, would be the maximum that we hope to okay. have, the time that we have to get it done. Awesome. We have a caller. Excellent. Let's, yes, excellent. Let's answer that. Thank you for calling into First City Forum. This is Catherine and Dan Ortez. Who are we speaking with? Um, you're speaking with Mark Hart. Hi, Mark. How are you doing today? Uh, very middling. I'm enjoying. The, I'm enjoying the sun. Oh, good. It's a gorgeous day out there, isn't it? It is. Yes, it is. I wish we had more of them, but I'll take what I can get. That's right. That's right. Did you have a question or a comment for Dan? Uh, yes. Uh, qu the question I have to do is: is how's the uh, um, um, marine highway ferry systems coming. It all seems to be a complete mess, and it should. And I do believe that we should establish some kind of uh, permanent funding that we don't have to worry about this mess, and which includes uh, uh, re re repaying uh, some uh, some new boats. Excellent. I agree with you, sir. And I will be glad to give you an update on the marine highway system, and I can re happily report. After not being so optimistic in the last couple of years on the marine highway system, I can happily report that things are looking much, much better um, this particular year for the marine highway system. 
largely because of the work that was done by our federal delegation, and most notably uh, Senator Murkowski, in relationship to the recent uh, federal infrastructure bill that was passed uh, by the U.S. Congress and signed by the President, um, oh, I'd say about a couple of months ago now. Um, what that law did um, is it created um, basically funding, federal funding, for uh, publicly funded, state-funded uh, marine transportation systems that exist throughout the United States. Now, that says, okay, wow, there must be a, a lot of uh, marine highway systems out there, and you know, hopefully Alaska might just get a small chunk of that money. But the reality is, is that there's really not um, that many uh, publicly state-funded uh, transportation, marine transportation systems out there. It's my understanding there's one in Maine, um, and uh, there's uh, perhaps a couple that might apply for this funding, be able to apply for this funding that are part of our territories, um, our U.S. territories. But in reality, um, our senator, Senator Murkowski, crafted the language in that bill, while not specifically to say funding for the uh, Alaska State Marine Highway System, it's pretty much directed towards uh, <laughs> the wording of the uh, bill is pretty much directed towards uh, the Marine Highway System. And so what that does, uh, it's our understanding that that puts forward $200 million a year for the next five years. Um, and I'll get into how we've been told that it will likely last even longer than that. But for the next five years, um, these state publicly funded marine transportation systems, of which there are very few, uh, are in line to apply for a share of this $200 million. And it's the current administration's uh, Department of Transportation's position that we will, at a minimum, qualify for $145 million of those $200 million. And they expect that we will qualify for significantly more money than that. Maybe not the entire $200 million, uh, but a large portion of that $200 million. So what that'll do is that'll provide money, it'll be that funding source that you just spoke of, uh, for us to operate and for us to make capital expenditures on improving our existing ferry fleet, which definitely needs uh, some over some revamping and some rebuilding and some repairing. Uh, lots of capital expenditures need to go into making our marine highway system uh, like it used to be. Uh, and we, while we may not ever achieve the level of schedule and service that we had, let's say, 20 years ago, well, it's, I remember been those days. Me, it's been told to me that we're going to come awful close to getting to where we were 20 years ago if this funding comes forward as we're expecting it to go. Now, there's still some a little bit of qualification out there. The, while the federal government did pass the infrastructure bill that included that uh, $200 million of funding annually, they didn't actually ap pass the appropriation uh, for that. In other words, they didn't move forward with the appropriating the, of the actual dollars towards that bill. That's supposed to happen here in, in March. It's our understanding. And once that happens in March, um, 
and it doesn't sound like there'll be that much opposition at all. Yeah, does that look good? The outlook looks good. Yeah, the outlook is really good. Um, And so what that'll allow us to do is uh, immediately uh, fund $145 million towards um, the, the operations primarily of the marine highway system. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but back in, um, you know, let's say 10 years ago, that's how much money the state was putting forward towards funding the marine highway system was like $140 million, I think, was at its high point. Um, And so it is a big chunk of money. Um, Recently, you know, I think it was just three years ago uh, when the governor first took office, um, his initial budget was suggesting that we would only put $20 million towards the marine highway system. Oof. So if you go from $140 million of funding level down to $20 million, that helps explain why we had so, so poor service there for several years. And that didn't even address the issue of the declining uh, status of the boats in terms of uh, their upkeep and their maintenance and things like that. Um, so... Yeah, things are looking much, much more positive, um, and, uh, and again, that's not due to anything directly that we did within the state legislature, um, other than showed a great willingness to accept this money uh, if it were to come from the federal government, uh, but it's hats off to our federal delegation and primarily to uh, Senator Murkowski, who worked so diligently um, and took a little bit of heat, frankly, for working so closely with the incoming Biden administration. But she recognized that, um, you know, she's here to represent the state's best interest. And if they were going to put forward an infrastructure bill, well, then she was going to ask that uh, Alaska be included in some of the benefits that would come forward in that infrastructure bill. And she did a great job. And then she got the votes uh, also. We had the supporting votes in final in the final passage of that bill from uh, Senator Sullivan, as well as uh, Representative Don Young. So all three of our delegations were on board for this federal infrastructure bill. Um, and because of that, the marine highway system's future looks a lot better than it did as little as a year ago. That's okay, sir, I thank you very much for answering my question. <laughs> you, you bet. Thank you for calling in, Mark. You have a great day, okay? You too. You all. Be good. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Mark, for giving us a call. We're speaking with Representative Dan Ortez. If you're interested in asking him a question or talking with him about an issue that's on your mind, feel free to give us a call, 907-247-2000. We are going to take a quick commercial break and be back shortly after these messages. And we are back with First City Forum on this gorgeous Monday. It is President's Day, actually. I don't think I yes. mentioned that earlier. So today, it's uh, we're uh, remembering and honoring uh, the presidents of the United States. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and which is... so. They have... The toughest job in the country. <laughs> they really, really do. <laughs> we're speaking with Representative Dan Ortez, and we're taking phone calls, and we have another caller. Here we go. Thank you for calling First City Forum. You're on the air with Catherine Tatsuda and Representative Dan Ortez. Who are we speaking with? Chris Dalton. Hi, Chris. How you doing? Hi, Hi Chris. Doing pretty good. A couple of questions to ask Dan. Uh, if he could explain the ranked choice voting, voting policy a lot better for us. Then the second question would be, do we still have the tax credits going on with the oil companies? And if we do, how much do we owe them? A couple of billion dollars still? That's about the main two good questions. Okay. Excellent questions, Chris. Good to hear your voice. 
Yep. Um, thanks. thanks for your participation in this in this program. I really do appreciate it. Um, so, um, rank choice voting. We'll start there. Uh, that was passed through a voters' initiative. The voters uh, approved uh, the state moving towards a rank choice voting system in the last election cycle. Um, I believe it was like about 52% to 48%, maybe a little less than that, but close to that. But in any case, what that does, Chris, how it works going to work is now when we go into a primary, and let's, let's talk about the primary first of all. Used to be uh, a primary was held by each of the different parties, and they would, and, and so if you wanted to vote in a primary, you had to request whether you were going to ask for a Republican ballot or a Democratic ballot in the primary process. Now, um, there's only going to be one ballot. So when you or I or anyone votes in the primary, we are all going to be getting the same ballot. And the ballot will have all the different candidates as a part of uh, that particular ballot, uh, which makes some people happy. Some people, you know, might have been motivated in the past to maybe vote for a Republican in one particular election, let's say a Republican that was running for uh, U.S. Senator, um, or, uh, but then they wanted to vote for a Democrat in maybe a lower race, maybe for their local legislative race. Now, you'll have that opportunity. You can cross back and forth. You can vote for whoever you want to vote for in the primary. So then what happens is, after a primary election, assuming there's as many as four candidates running for any particular office, the top four vote-getters will, doesn't matter whether they're two Republicans, three Republicans, or three Democrats, one Republican, or an independent, or whatever, whoever emerges uh, amongst the top four leaders, they go into the general election. Then uh, the general election will, will be a little bit different for us as well. What's going to happen at the general election is, yes, you'll get the same kind of ballot as you got before, um, because before we weren't limited in the general to either Republican or Democrat. We were just allowed to vote for whoever was on the ballot. But now what's going to be different is you're going to make your number one choice uh, for who you want to vote for. Let's say you're voting for, a uh, again, a U.S. Uh, senator spot. You're going to make your number one choice for that U.S. senator, but then you're also likely going to see three other names on the ballot, and then you are going to be given the opportunity, you won't have to, but you'll be given the opportunity to rank below your first choice, your second, third, and fourth choice. And you'll just simply do that by putting the number two, the number three, or number four next to each of the remaining candidates. So you'll be able to rank, not only you'll be able to cast not only a vote for your first choice, but you'll be able to cast a vote in, in a certain sense for your second, third, and fourth choices, which is fine. Uh, that gives you more choice as a voter, for sure. It gives you ability to express your um, opinion that much more fully. Then what happens is they will collect all those ballots, they will count the ballots, and if any one candidate gets a simple majority of 50, over 50% of the votes that were cast, uh, they, let's say they get over 50% of the number one ranking by a little by over 50% of the voters, then they become the elected uh, candidate to the, that particular position. But let's say that they don't. Let's say that after collecting all the ballots from around the state, um, that they the the leading vote getter only gets 42%. Um, in the past. 
that still might allow the person to be elected if they were the highest vote getter. But now what has what will happen is, let's say that person gets 42%, and then the second place person gets um, 28%. But they will then take all the um, all the votes that were cast for the people who uh, finished third and fourth, and I may be a little bit inaccurate on that, but I know for at least who placed fourth, they'll take the second choice for all the voters uh, for the fourth place finisher, the person who finished fourth, they'll take all those person's votes and go back and take a look at the ballots of who, after voting for that person as their number one choice, who did they vote for as their second choice? And then who they voted for as their second choice, those votes will go to that particular person, which might be enough to take that person who was finished at 42% up to the 51%. Or it might take the person who finished in second place, it might give them enough votes to get up to a little over 51, uh, a little over 50%. Um, and so then, if in fact it still hasn't happened where neither uh, person um, who uh, finished first and second had enough to get into the little over 50% uh, category. Then they go to the persons um, who finished third and they took all of those people's uh, votes who voted for the person who finished third as their number one choice. They'll go back to those ballots and take a look and see who they put in as their second choice. And then they'll do the same process again. And if that gets the people 51% uh, of the vote, uh, well then actually it won't even matter. Whoever is the leading vote fitter after they go through the fourth uh, person's finisher's votes, their number two choice, and the third person's uh, finisher's voice and their number two choice, then they'll just go with whoever got the biggest majority. But it's most likely, scientifically probable, that they will get over 51% in, in order to the, for them to do that. So that's the idea of it. Um, and, and again, it's not popular with everybody, but, you know, it's not something that the legislature did. It's not something that the governor did. It's something that the voters did. They approved this ranked choice voting, which happened successfully, it's my understanding. I can't remember whether it's in Vermont or New Hampshire. There's one state that's been doing this. I think it's Maine, if I Maine, remember yeah, right. Yeah. Where this has been going on. And it's my understanding I was contacted by a representative, state representative from Wisconsin, uh, who I know personally, and he said that their state is in this upcoming election is going to go through the ranked choice voting option for the people and see whether they approve it as well. So it's something that might be starting to happen across um, the country. And, um, and again, I think the proponents of this kind of a system are basically saying that, hey, you know, maybe it's true, it's a better form of democracy if people get a better representation of their wishes uh, above just what their number one choice might be in relationship to any particular uh, election. Maybe, um, you know, maybe if the person that they voted for um, only gets, under the old system, uh, uh, respectable 45% and the winner gets 55%, maybe they're feeling a little bit cheated that, you know, did our votes really, you know, and, and, and if they don't actually get 50% of the vote total, then maybe, you know, what I'm saying is this is just one opportunity for voters uh, to have a little bit more say as to what's going to happen with um, 
with government in relationship to local, state, not local, but state and, uh, and federal elections. Our local government hasn't adopted the ranked choice voting system. Um, oh, okay. So, so it's state and federal. State and federal, state and federal right. only. Okay. Did an that answer your question um, on that topic, Chris? Uh, pretty much. Uh, I saw something on the Internet, like uh, I guess the legislator, if they're unhappy with the results, they might have the power to overturn this uh, ranked choice voting, no. eliminate it completely. No, no that's, that's not anything that I've been made aware of. Um, okay, so if I do run across this article again, I'll probably yeah. write it down or whatever. And, yeah, uh, so you pretty much answer the question there. Yeah. So hopefully um, the ballot machines will work for that. Right, you're right. Uh, when yeah. Ann called in last week uh, on First City Forum and and talked briefly about the ranked choice voting, and she had mentioned something similar to that, that there mm -hmm. is the opportunity to, and I don't know if it's the voters to say that this doesn't work for us, or, but that somebody can make the decision, you know, as a whole to say this doesn't work and we want to not do it anymore. So we'll have to oh, do... certainly the initiative, yeah. the public initiative process could erase this law with, um, if the issue came up again in okay. the next, uh, in the next uh, ballot season or the one after that. Right. Sure, certainly they can go back on that decision if they find out that it, it's not working like they thought they would or is, there's more more detractors than supporters in right. the end, um, then it can, be, it can be taken away just as quickly as it was put in. Uh, by the initiative process, it could be removed. By okay. The okay. Super. I, um, Chris, I, I do want to say, I, um, Laura Antonson from Catch Can. She was just at a conference, um, learning a, more about this specific topic. Um, I, I want to talk with her, and if she seems like an expert enough, you know, to come on, I want her to come on and and share more about this because I know that this is such a massive change to how we've been operating as voters. So keep Definitely your ear out. Definitely affect a lot of the, the Republican or the Democratic Party. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Yeah. So that's uh, that's that's coming up on the horizon. I haven't been able. She was just there over this last weekend. So um, I'm going to connect with her and uh, and see what I can okay. find out or connect with people who can help to educate us. Um, you did a beautiful job. Thank you. Thank yeah, you, sir. Yeah. The I next question was that tax thing. credit to the oil companies. That was our big nightmare ten years back, where we give them 100 percent the paybacks for their drilling costs or whatever which no other state or country in the world's done, and we do with those. Are we done with that tax? Did we get rid of it, or are we still paying them? Okay, it's a very good question. And before I get to that, I just want to say one more thing about ranked choice voting. The proponents will tell you that it, it, its impact will be to tend to have politicians direct their their message and their um, platforms, if you will, more towards the center of things, more towards the middle of things, rather than being, uh, quote, too much liberal, too far to the left liberal, or too far to the right conservative. Most people say that uh, when a person who primarily who used to run in a primary uh, could get, would largely tailor their message to uh, the more extreme of the party based on that who that's was the group of people who had the most to say in terms of voting and were active voters in relationship to primaries now when a person runs in a primary they not only have to think about those groups but they also have to think about the center or to the slightly to the left area because those people have access to that primary ballot just like 
um, everybody else will. And so the theory is, is that it's going to tend to moderate candidates who might tailor the message more to the extremes of either side and, and force them to have a position that's more central because in the primary, um, everybody's going to be having access to that person's name on that particular ballot. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. that's an interesting uh, perspective to bring up. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. All right. Yeah. Tax credits. Tax credits. Okay, Chris, that's a good question. So to start out, I will answer by saying no, we do not as a state still pay oil companies for their exploration and drilling costs. Now, we never did under the previous law. We never paid 100% of their uh, drilling and exploration costs. We paid as much as 33% uh, of their drilling and exploration costs, which are still it's a still was a significant amount of money. Um, but no, we uh, got away from that um, a couple of years ago um, with. Um, I can't remember the number of the bill, but we basically passed a bill that said no longer are we going to pay out uh, to oil companies a third of to, – to reimburse oil companies for a third of their exploration and or drilling costs. However, um, during the years when that law was in existence, the bills uh, for that did pile up. And so we still have remaining um, to pay for that uh, – law when it was in existence, we still have remaining about 700 to $800 million in monies that we, quote, owe oil companies for their drilling and exploration costs uh, that they incurred back when that law that you referred to was in existence. So we have these latent bills that we're still working at paying off um, that's still on the docket until we pay them off. Um, but the law itself has gone away, and once we eliminate that bill, it'll no longer have an impact on our um, our accounts owed uh, category. <laughs> yes, your your payables, your account <laughs> payables. Like at one time, I think they were getting more money, you know, in return than Alaskans were getting for the permanent fund checks because we had to pay them first, supposedly, or. Yeah, that definitely had an impact on the amount of resources that we had available to hand out, not just for not just to pay our dividends, but also for state operations and things like that. You're right; that was taking a significant chunk of money, yeah. and um, and it will take a significant chunk of money until we do pay that off. Um, but um, you know, the nice thing about it, as it was written, is there's not an interest in that money that we owe, so we're not paying interest costs. That's and good. it's not specifically defined as to when we have to have it paid off. So while we want to honor our debts and we want to give confidence to any industry that chooses to do business um, in the state of Alaska, um, so we will pay those off. But there isn't a an interest charge while the debt lasts and there isn't a definite date as to when they have to be paid off. That's, we intend to pay them off. Yes, yeah. I was, I was yeah. curious. Wonderful. Um, anything else, Chris? I appreciate you calling in. Uh, another good one would be like uh, if you've been watching the erosion up on the North Slope on some of the villages. Like the tides are definitely getting higher, and it looks like some houses are falling into the ocean or whatever, or the rivers, and that's going to affect a lot of the coastline up there from the permafrost thawing, whatever the global warming happening so fast. 
Yes, that's that. definitely been an issue that's been brought to our attention, rightfully so, understandably so, the mm -hmm. issue of, uh, uh, of climate change. You know, climate change used to be, uh, they used to call it global warming, and um, it used to be kind of a thing where people debated whether it was happening or not. Now nobody's debating that what they're seeing in their with their own eyes, it's happening. Now there's still yeah. some debate as to whether or not, it, you know, from some people's perspective, whether it was caused by man um, and caused by our practices that, you know, we, we put forward towards developing our carbon fuels, etc. Some people still say that, um, that perhaps this is just a natural thing that's been happening over millennium and, you know, we're through this warming cycle. Most scientists say, though, that mankind has had an impact on accelerating that uh, through his burning of carbon fuels. But still, nobody's debating that the climate is changing. Nobody's debating that, um, that the oceans are rising. And we can only look at villages, like you say, in the western and northern parts of Alaska. We can see with our own eyes that the tides are getting higher and schools and, and buildings are, are close to being... Um, overcome by the waters rising and so we've actually had to spend money already in moving some areas of uh, helping to move some areas um, in the state of Alaska quote up higher on shore um, and I know right now uh, we're replacing one complete school up in northern or western Alaska and I don't know for sure whether it's related to this climate change issue uh, but still um, it's a fact uh, you know as we move forward we're, mankind as a whole, the United States as a country, and the state of Alaska as a state are not going to be able to ignore the impacts of, uh, of climate change as they're happening before our own eyes. You know, and climate change is not just the erosion of, um, of, our, of our soil, of our lands up in parts of Alaska, but it also, uh, some people say, it, it's all about what's causing our our temperatures in the oceans to warm and causing our the patterns of our salmon uh, migration to change as well as certain resources that certain fish that didn't used to be found in our waters are now being found in our waters and what's going to be the impact of that in our local ecosystems etc um, you know will our salmon stocks uh, start to uh, you know immigrate to further places north and not so commonly in, in Alaska. I mean, not so commonly in Southeast Alaska. So these are big issues uh, and ones that um, we're going to demand our attention in the future. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, right. I got to let you go. We got to, hey, yeah. it's about the end of the well, show. Thanks for the call. Yeah, yeah, thank you, Chris. Have a great day. Bye. All right. Yeah, we're, we're pushing up against the hour. Oh, Holy my smokes. goodness. I know. That Time just, flies when you're having fun, It Catherine. sure does. <laughs> yes. Um, we've been uh, speaking with Representative Dan Ortez, who is, uh, you're currently in session up in the legislature, up in Juneau, working steadily on the state budget. So thank you for coming down. Give us an update. It's always nice to see you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, my pleasure. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I feel right at home. Yeah, right well, here, so. yeah, I know. I feel like I'm back in history class, but that's another topic. <laughs> Anyways, I'm Catherine Tatsuda. This is First City Forum. I'll be back on there with you tomorrow talking with Amanda Glanzer and our friends with First City, or with First City Players. All right, you guys, enjoy the sunshine out there. We'll talk to you soon.